are back with another episode of Talking Kotlin. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's nice to be here. And someone else is also here. Uh, that's Hadi. Hey, Hadi. Hi, I'm still here. How are you doing, Seth? I am great. I'm, I'm just wonderful. I'm honestly itching uh, to get today's episode started. Um, so what I suggest is we bring our people in here. We get through the weather. And then we talk a little bit about arrow and arrow analysis. What do you think? But we could do all that. Yeah, sure. But I have a little, I want to just uh, mention, I watched your video the other day on uh, Kotlin uh, context receivers. Mm -hmm. um, well done, Seb. That was a good oh. video. That was Thank a you. very, very good video. I appreciate video. it. Video, video. Do you see what I did there? Video? I Say video. Video. Okay. I, I got a German friend that can't say V. He says video. Video. Okay. Video. Wonderful. <laughs> anyway. anyway, wonderful. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. All, All right. right. So who are we today? I mean, who, yep. we know who we are. Who is with us today? Uh, we have uh, an all-star cast as, as usual on this show. Shouldn't be surprising anyone at this point anymore. Um, we have Simon, Raul, and Alejandro. Uh, Simon uh, is one of the maintainers uh, of Arrow. Uh, he's one of the lead software engineers at uh, 47 Degrees. Raul is the co-founder and CTO at uh, of 47 Degrees and also one of the maintainers. And then there's Alejandro, who, at least according to Raul, uh, is the smartest one of the bunch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but also, he's a formal methods engineer at Twig. Welcome to the show, you guys. Right, I'll take oh. it the smartest thing over the other thing. I like it more <laughs> than I make it my title. Yeah, honestly, I think I think you can put that in your Twitter bio right now. Um, I think that's a, that's an endorsement worth showing off. How are you folks doing today? Pretty good. How are yourself? Excited. Also, also the weather is nice. So yeah, hey, we we decided to stop that. Remember, Seth? Really? We said Did no we more talking about the weather? Did we? Wasn't there? Nah, a, wasn't I'm just there joking. Yeah, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> we'll never stop. <laughs> no, exactly. Actually, uh, so I know where you are, Raul, and I know, I think I know where you are, Alejandro. I don't know where you are, Simon. Where, where do you live? I live in Antwerp, Belgium. Okay. So I'm pretty close uh, by everyone. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So let's let's go through the weather then. Out here, it's actually <laughs> nice and sunny. Uh, there's a couple of clouds in the air, but you know, uh, I'm just looking forward to when it cools down in the evening so I can go for a little bit of a jog. How's, uh, how's the weather in Belgium? Uh, today we actually uh, have a really nice day. It's very clear, sunny, uh, which is yeah, really nice for this time of year. Sweet. And how about our folks in Spain over here? You know, Spain is a big country, right? I mean, sure. Like, but I, how, how's the weather you, in America? Oh, well. Yeah, but well. you, you realize that you realize that when I think of Spain, I literally just think of like beaches and like sunny weather all the time, and like people like eating ice cream uh, and playing the Sorry flamenco the guitar, right? Oh, by the way, Raúl, yeah. is that a flamenco guitar hanging? Yeah, that's one of my old uh, Spanish guitars that I had as a teenager. Okay, so we gotta we gotta listen to you play some Paco de Lucia uh, later yes. on. Not today, though. Uh, excuses, excuses. Yes, but going back to the weather, I'm in Malaga. It's fine. I'm guessing that in Cadiz, where you are, Raúl, it's fine. Where are you, actually, Alejandro? I'm actually in the Netherlands, so oh. I'm 
but the weather near Amsterdam is pretty nice too. I mean, we we always share the weather with Belgium, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Raul, we caught you off. How is the weather? No. In Paris? <laughs> It's actually a little bit cloudy today, so it's uh, uh, unusual because it's usually uh, sunny. But here in Chiclanaca, it is uh, a bit cloudy. Maybe it will uh, rain. Yeah, you know, we had some uh, friends of ours that came over from Canarias, uh, which is an island somewhere over there, uh, one hour behind Spain, I mean, in time zone. And uh, they have a lot of Kalima, uh, which I think, I don't know how you say Kalima in Spanish, in English. Uh, but it's basically the Sahara suspension cloud kind of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been in Malaga for 40 years, and I think I've experienced that thing like three times. And she's like, we get it like three or four times a month. I could not imagine living with that so much. It is it is horrendously bad. It was really, really bad here in Spain. So, yeah. Anyway, moving on. That's right. To new directions. Did you get that? Arrow. No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, amazing. I'm trying to, you know, I've been spending so much time trying to improve my, um, what is it called? Segways? Segways? Mm -hmm. Yes. Segways. And, and you don't even appreciate them. Well, you know, they're so smooth. They're hard to point out at this point, even. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about arrow and arrow analysis because that certainly seems like you would be the right people to talk uh, about with. Uh, and I just want to quickly read, because Hardy loves elevator pitches, it says on his homepage, um, just want to quickly read the elevator pitch that I saw for, for Arrow Analysis, and then I think we can spend the next however long unpacking those two sentences. <laughs> so it says here that Arrow Analysis is a plugin for the Kotlin compiler, which supercharges your compilation pipeline with new checks in order to make your code safer and more robust. It's also uh, the first public plugin using the Arrow Meta compiler framework. Okay, yeah. that's actually good marketing. Although I would drop the whole, this is also our first public plugin, because at some point it won't be, and then you have to update all your brochures. It will always, it sense. Will always be the first, right? <laughs> it's not the only, it's the first. Oh yeah, true. Okay, and that's why I'm not in marketing. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Our VP of communications, everybody. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's a lot to go through. Uh, for folks that, I, I guess for folks that haven't heard of Arrow, uh, does it make sense to even like briefly mention what Arrow is? Or is, is that out of scope for this particular plugin? I think it's in a scope in the sense that... Um... Uh, Arrow is a family of libraries, but more importantly, uh, it focuses on the Arrow effects and the Arrow core library. And this compiler plugin uh, also gives you or provides a set of uh, techniques uh, in, in a way, like a set of refinements over the types and interacts with the type system in a more deep way that you could do with uh, just a regular library. So they're somehow related in the kind of uh, field or domain they're on but they of course like uh, serve different purposes both work for domain modeling though uh, and let me follow that up with another question do people need to understand arrow or arrow effects or the likes in order to use arrow analysis or get started with it maybe if i can answer this one 
Uh, I don't uh, think so because you know we can see Arrow more as an open source organization. Uh, and if I would have to uh, say uh, or give a single sentence as a mission statement for the Arrow organization, I would say it would be bringing uh, functional programming patterns uh, to an, in an idiomatic way to the Kotlin language. And Arrow analysis does that in a very different way than some of the other Arrow libraries that are under the Arrow organization. Now, kind of the end goal of the whole organization is well, let's try to bring you know this kind of functional features to have like safer or, or more or better type uh, features in the language, and some of those can be done using just the library code like Arrow. So for some, we we bring some compiler plugin from some library like like with Optics, and some are just compiler plugins like Arrow Analysis. So the, the whole idea is let's bring this idea of functional domain modeling and a strong typing more into the coding ecosystem. And I think for I think that's like the overarching theme of the of the whole organization. All yeah. right. Uh, that actually that actually sounds great. Uh, because I think both functional programming and you know uh, making making types more expressive uh those are all things that the kotlin community is always uh pretty excited about uh so i personally really like anchoring my thoughts to some kind of certain examples uh, instead of just talking on the abstract level so could you give us uh some insights on what i can do when i add arrow analysis to my project that i couldn't have done before right so so Maybe the, the simplest thing you can do is, for example, check that every time you are using uh, a list and you are taking the first thing, so you call dot first, uh, arrow analysis will actually check that those are correct. So that, that you either have made a check somewhere else in your code that uh, guarantees that this call to first will be okay, or it will tell you, sorry, this may end up in problems. It might give you problems later. And, and then you can replace it with first or null, or or uh, or actually what it's supposed to do is you actually introduce this condition that then checks, and then you know that you've covered uh, every single thing. So that that's like a like that's how you can use it as a as a let's say consumer of, of this kind of condition. So so Aronus is kind of a plugin, but also we have annotated every uh, function in the Kotlin standard library with this kind of things. Like to use first in a safe way, you need to have a, a list which has at least one element. Uh, all the, all these kind of things are added, and these are extra checks that will done uh, during compilation time. So that that's maybe I think that the smallest thing. So if you if you add uh, arrow analysis and then you write empty list dot let's say get three then you will you will get something which says sorry you need to have a list of at least four elements for this to be okay so it will fail at runtime and in this case we will it will always fail but in other cases uh, it could also be that you can make the check yourself and then our analysis takes care of of you know keeps track of okay this list I know it has five elements so this thing is is safe to do at this point so this is the kind of thing that error analysis can do. And if you know, like calling contracts, error analysis is very similar in the sense of like, it tracks the data flow and it allows you to add constraints to functions and places where you would say information about what's coming on the arguments. 
but it's a more advanced in the sense that it allows you to use not just Boolean and nullable types, but other more complex uh, types and, and expressions and relations between the types. So does uh, error analysis add uh, new syntax to the language then in order for me to express these kind of conditions? Because I assume I, I have to, at some point, uh, tell the compiler, I can guarantee that this operation will always return a non-empty list uh, or something like right. that. So uh, yeah, you, you we essentially use the, the, the requires part to have like the preconditions. So the thing that the arguments need to satisfy and then at the end you add a small, uh, we call it post condition block. So you write post and then what is supposed to be true at the end of this function. It's, it's a lot of what has to be true to call the function, which will be checked then, and what do we know that it's true at the end of the function, and and this is checked uh, in the function. So this, this also can can give you a bit of warranty. So if you if you think that the function you've written at the end should not give you an empty list, you write it down, and then the compiler checks it, and then also when you call this function, we know this is true. So this is this is it. It should be quite. Uh, I mean, it's essentially. The same thing as writing a, 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 a requires block, but uh, you have an extra argument which represents the result. So you can talk about the result. So it should be clear. It should be quite familiar to, to people uh, already using the contracts functionality in Kotlin. Right. And uh, I, I assume I, I know the answer to this, but I want to kind of make it clear because you know, when we've done the introduction and all of you are very well known for uh, your liking i would say to functional programming i mean am i correct there that you kind of like functional programming yeah a little bit kind right? of. Uh, <laughs> so to not to not um dissuade people that aren't doing functional programming this is not only applicable to when you're doing functional programming i assume you can use this in all cases yeah right? not at all i mean it uh as i said that that's that's if you think of, of this overarching theme I was thinking of, I was mentioning of, of Arrow, this is going more into the part of having a strong touch, but you can use it, uh, for example, to introduce a class and say, well, in, in this class, when I use this class, this thing should, should, uh, should happen. So for example, I don't know, you have an, an age uh, an H field, and this should be always greater than zero. So these are checks which apply to whatever style you are using. Uh, in fact, if I'm very, very honest, right now the, the main uh, uh, thing where, where sometimes uh, arrow analysis uh, says, well, I don't know what's going on is when you use very complicated higher order functions, sometimes those are hard to check because it's like, uh, you know, things can go on, Functions can be called more than once, so it's hard. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it goes on this same idea, right? Like uh, you want to check, for example, whether your list is empty or not, and people from more functional programming community would say, well, introduce a new type, non-empty list, and and that's uh, something that it's it's done. And another way is what we do in our analysis, somehow that your value saying this is a list which satisfies this property. So it's go it's just two ways to, at the end of the day, achieve the same goal. So generally, uh, 
I think reasoning about these kind of things is probably the quote unquote the easiest when they're like immutable lists, right? Or whether when they're read only lists. Um, are you is is this also something that you've introduced for uh, for other collection types? So for for mutable lists, or is is there do you have some kind of integrations for making sure that multi-threaded applications also kind of can still validate these kind of conditions? What's what's the state there? So right now we don't have something specifically for multi-threaded application. What happens right now is that something could be potentially mutable, then uh, by default, we cannot warranty things. It's a bit like when you have uh, a when block and you have something which could be nullable and then you check it, but then if you use it again, you somehow need to have a, an immutable mirror of this. So it, it, this is a bit like this. So if my age field, for example, is should be greater than zero, uh, and I access it, maybe I access this again, and I can no longer warranty this. So, so when we have mutability, essentially we sometimes say, uh, sorry, but this thing, uh, we don't know whether after checking this, this is still works. So what we've, what we've done, and, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, do this in the future, is introduce something which we call invariance. And the idea is that, uh, is that uh, if we check on every specific use of this mutable variable, then something holds, then we can still assume it even if we are mutating it, right? Because we are somehow promising this is going to be the case. And uh, of course, I mean, you can, you can, this is all at compile time. So you can still defeat it using reflection and, and, and you know, bad things may happen. But that's the idea that, that what we do then is we attach to this mutable thing, be it a variable or be it a member of a mutable collection, some promise and then if you if you always keep your promises then we can take it for granted later on but but that's that usually makes everything a bit more complicated because because when you have immutability you can assume things when you are using it and here you have to attach the invariant at the very beginning of your program so to say and keep this promise so sometimes it gets hard to like know what to write there but but that's that's a bit the, how how it works using this invariance and I think that it's because you've mentioned this a couple of times in terms of strong typing and correctness. I I think that this is one of the things that folks that uh, are fans or or you know promote or, or love functional programming. One of the things that you strive for is is this this exact thing, right? To kind of guarantee correctness of the application even before execution. Kind of somehow saying that you know my my like someone said you know if you write a Haskell code and it compiles you know that it's going to perform correctly right this is I, ho I hope that was that, true right? but <laughs> pardon I hope that was true I mean I've yeah, had my first year of Haskell programming <laughs> but yeah it goes it goes in that direction right it goes in the direction of write more types and put more effort on the compilation. So hopefully you will be able to save your problems later on. I mean, you won't have this call about a bug popping up or, or having to spend too much time debugging stuff. So that, that's a bit of the promise, right? Yeah. Raul, Simon, uh, feel free to participate more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll do. 
error analysis is really Alejandro's uh, project. Uh, but yeah, just to maybe come back on that last thing you mentioned, I think it's very similar to the goal of uh, test-driven development, uh, where at least for me, functional programming helps me achieve, make the feedback loop shorter so that the compiler and the types in my program will actually tell me when I make a mistake without me having to go as far as even run the test. So even before running the test, I can already know that there is something wrong in my program. Let's maybe also talk a little bit about the, the relationship then still between arrow analysis and, and the rest of arrow functionality maybe. Because, well, we've already briefly heard the word optics before. And uh, when I think, oh, I probably shouldn't be using mutable structures here, but I still have them deeply nested. That's usually when also people shove optics in my face. Um, can you maybe give our listeners just a, a, a quick introduction to that and maybe also how then it relates to analysis, if it relates to analysis? Um, so Arrow Optics is a project or one of the other projects under the Arrow organization that tries to uh, complement, I would say, the language. So all the libraries in Arrow are an, a company library to something. I would say the Optics library accompanies the language in the sense that it tries to provide something like the copy method for data classes, but on steroids, uh, I would say. Um, so it helps you to update and work with immutable data in an elegant way. Uh, and it does so by providing a couple of extractions and with a compiler plugin offers you a DSL uh, to very easily work and manipulate uh, immutable data. Uh, that's uh, a nice summary of what error optics uh, does. With that being said, uh, maybe a slightly related topic. Uh, we are actually, or I'm very hopeful for the immutable, uh, the immutable data structure keep uh, or proposal that Colin has. Uh, and I'm very curious that if it covers the same use cases then error optics might uh, disappear because, you know, as I said, it's a co company library to the language. So if the language offers the same functionality, then the library in error will disappear. The, the, is that something that feels good or something that feels bad? <laughs> I think it I feels know. good. Yeah. Yes, it's really good. Yeah. I it's mean, good. this is a, it's a, one of the pain points that we felt in Kotlin. And if there's a better uh, or a more idiomatic solution in Kotlin itself, then I think that's the celebrations for everyone. And having to maintain less code is also always good. So. <laughs> We but also have an, exa an example of that when, when in Kotlin, the suspend functionality uh, really matured and more people were using it. Uh, we got rid of all of the IO and all the data types that we had uh, uh, to model effects. So really our, our purpose is like, if we're using something and it gets added to the language or, or there's a, a better option for it for the entire community, we don't want to maintain it in, in error for sure. So great. Yeah, I think that that is that is very nice. Uh, and in fact, you know, we have the history of I remember Raul when we were, were discussing the two functional programming libraries that used to exist in the Kotlin ecosystem, and uh, you were very uh, adamant in saying we should do what's best for the community, right? And if that means joining them into one, that's the best thing. Now. Coming from other communities, there's also a certain level of backlash around this idea in that, you know, I'm not saying that Kotlin or JetBrains or anything from the standard library could be interpreted as the mothership or something like that. But this idea that 
as a team, as you know, group of folks in the community, we put something together, we put an effort, and now comes along the standard library and does the same thing. Doesn't that demotivate folks from trying to innovate in the ecosystem? I mean, I don't, I don't think this is this is actually removing innovation. I think it, it's actually what something I really like about Kotlin is, for example, how open the compiler plugin API is, which means we can prototype this kind of features, you know, like optics and analysis, and and they work well. I mean, you when once you're using it, they really become part of the compiler. So we can prototype those, and maybe people will will keep it. So. I actually see it much better than other communities where you need to create your own modified version of the compiler or whatever to introduce things. So, I, I mean, I'm just saying that that I don't see this as actually removing innovation. I actually see that this opens the space to try new things. And, you know, I would actually hope that most of the thing, many of the things we do will eventually become in the actual compiler instead of us, you know, as Samu was saying, as maintaining our own thing. I see as a promotion of some of the features and ideas. In fact, some of the things that we've been, I mean, since we've been working with the compiler clients, we've been talking to uh, many folks from the JetBrains team, from the compiler team. Especially I've been talking to uh, Dimitri Novoslav, which uh, he's uh, shown me many of the features uh, with the new front-end IR, and we are actually working, trying to build plugins uh, with that. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this in public yet, <laughs> but uh, we are building a couple of plugins uh, with uh, the dev branches that they're producing and um, all of that uh, work uh, we are seeing inside the compiler, some new features like this context receiver proposal. Before that, we sent KIP87, many other uh, other proposals and other KIP similars were sent. So I think this all, this, all these ideas contribute to the bigger goal. And now we see we, we have like a really good context receiver proposal that works for all use cases, not just the type classes or the ones that we made up from, from our point of view, right? And and I also see in the compiler now in the in the new APIs, uh, some features related to the, like type attributes, uh, related to the data flow, to things that we might be able to use to improve maybe error analysis uh, down the road. And I think in general, any idea that comes from one of the libraries uh, like Arrow, which is not meant to be a single individual interest library, but more of a community interest library where there's many individuals, there's uh, companies that are interested in its success or whatever. If they make it to the language, it's a win for them as well, because it's something that they don't have to tell people, hey, go and use Arrow for this, because it's already in Kotlin. So I think we are all cool with that. I picked up on one thing in, in Simon's uh, description beforehand, um, because you said that Arrow Optics is also uses a compiler plugin, but also we heard beforehand that the first public compiler plugin running on Arrow Meta is Arrow Analysis. So now that of course makes me wonder, uh, what's up with that? Uh, why, why is it not on Arrow Meta? Is it going to be moved to Arrow Meta? Maybe we first need to even tell people what Arrow Meta really is, uh, so that even this yeah. question makes sense. So, so maybe I can, I can, uh, okay, Simon, go on. Yes, I was just going to say very briefly, maybe I misspoke, but I meant, uh, what I meant to say was Arrow Optics is currently actually running on Google KSP. So uh, 
if I'm not mistaken, it's running on a compiler plugin, but not through Arometa. So. Yeah. And if I can expand on that, basically right now, the status of compiler plugins are, since the, the front end is changing to the front end IR, and before we have a, a descriptor based uh, API, this older API uh, was used uh, for Incapped and in other places to generate source uh, code uh, for plugins. This is going to eventually change. So we based early versions of Meta in these uh, older APIs who are now going to change. And we never actually made a promise to keep them around because we knew that we were not going to be able to maintain them with this big change to front end IR. So some parts like the case of the optics plugin that requires source code generation, those are we're using KSP uh, for it. And other plugins like analysis, which require like data flow integration and much more deeper integrations, then we use the compiler APIs for it. But you know, this proves the point that I mentioned earlier that you should just drop the whole the first public plugin whatever from your yes, marketing totally. tablet because if Seb is confused, I'm pretty sure other people yes. will as well. I'll say that we are so proud of I mean Arrow Meta is also something it's it's you can think of it as, as utilities and the good and things to actually build a compiler plugin because otherwise the, the compiler API is a bit raw and has some edges. I guess because now it's moving to this new thing. So that was something. So this was built on top and, and we built several plugins on top of this. So it's also been kind of a lot of work, especially from, from Raul's side to, to make Meta a reality. So to have something which we could build analysis without fighting with a the compiler, there is like this like pillow in between, which is Arrow Meta. It's just a, like an utility library for compiler plugin writers. And to clarify this abstraction layer, is this something that you're going to be move like, are those APIs going to stay roughly the same as, as the compiler APIs evolve? So basically what Aerometo does is like wraps the compiler APIs with a, a functional DSL, mm -hmm. such as that you can declare a plugin in terms of like the different phases, like analysis, uh, code generation, resolution, whatever phase that you want to modify in the compiler. In contrast, the, the compiler API is actually just a bunch of classes and listeners that you have to register and manage yourself. So it kind of like abstracts away that complexity and it tries to follow the, the latest stable compiler APIs. So once FIR makes it there, we'll decide if Meta makes sense at all or not. Because if FIR, the compiler plugin API, when it becomes public, is actually better than what we have, then there's no, no point for it. This is the series that Amanda Hinchman, I think, started now to write about. Uh, yes, uh, the, the yes. Amanda, Amanda yeah. worked in, in Aerometa. She's yeah. been contributing. Cool. Okay, so I have a question coming back to this analysis thing, right? Uh, because essentially what you're saying is that you annotate the standard library. And uh, I don't know how many of you here are familiar with a tool that we have, which is called ReSharper, uh, which is kind of like the IntelliJ of... Uh, of the .NET world, it was a plugin for Visual mm. Studio, kind of like what Rider is now, full-blown IDE. And we used to, well, we used to, we still do annotate libraries there. And then based on that annotation, provides a certain level of analysis. And there's, so I've got two questions. One of them is, what about annotations outside of the standard library? And, and the second one is, where do you draw the line between, is this kind of like, uh, you know, part of the 
like this is an enhancement on the static analysis that an IDE could potentially provide or, uh, or as part of a linter or build tool, et cetera. Um, okay. and you know, is there a situation in which as these analysis start making its way into the compiler itself or into the IDE, they now become redundant in your arrow analysis plugin? So let me, let me maybe first answer the second one. So. I mean, our goal has always been that this kind of extra compiler check becomes part of the IDE somehow. And, and that's that's why we are kind of excited of this new uh, plugin API, because it seems that you essentially can get the two for free. You write the compiler plugin, but this integrates uh, great in IntelliJ and so on. Because now what we have is that if you run your, your build task in, in IntelliJ and you know have you have the gradle output and then you can click on the errors there, which is not as good as it could be, right? It, it's you have to do a separate step, but you can still get the thing. So I mean our goal is actually to have both because I don't know, at least from my perspective, the sooner you get the the, the problem, the better, especially in this kind of things where you are gonna get most of the uh, things are gonna be, oh, you are missing a case here. What okay. Click the button and add it. That's that's our like. If we think of the promise land, that that's it. Like you have the error and a small quick fix button with add whatever needs or add the extra check or put this on a test or whatever. And uh, about the first thing about so I mentioned uh, we annotated the standard library, but uh, that's actually uh, part of arrow analysis and and something which took us a bit of time to to get. Uh, working is that you can actually annotate whatever library you you want. So you can you just go and create another library and you say, oh, this is the precondition for this function. I call the function. This is the post condition, and and the system takes it into account. So actually, the whole uh, we call it like loss. We didn't come up with a, with a better name. So so the loss for the standard library are just in a separate library. So when you depend on both. The standard library and the loss, our analysis recognizes, oh, I have these functions, but these functions come without any law. But look here, there are, this is a bunch of annotations, metadata, which tell me what should be the ones here. And we did it because we uh, foresaw that, of course, we are not going to change the standard library itself. But not only that, like imagine you want to bring um, better types for Spring, let's say, well, you just open a file and start adding annotations for a spring. And this is separately distributed. It's just a, a different uh, package you depend on. So, so the more laws you depend on, the better you other things may come. So, so that's a bit how, how it works. This is open at any point. You can say, you know what? This doesn't have pre and post conditions, but I'm giving them to you. And we cannot check those because we don't have access to the source code but we can still take it as granted somehow. And that's, that's actually what we do with the standard library. We don't check that the standard library is correct. We assume it's correct, but we give better types that our analysis can use. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, this is a similar approach to uh, to ReSharper, right? Um, you don't have to actually touch the original library in order to provide these annotations, but it was more a kind of like a point of, uh, you know, what other libraries, common libraries, things that people are using that maybe they're not going to take the time to provide this uh, annotations. Are you providing or planning on providing? 
I, I think in, in when you look at error analysis, there is like a big difference between error analysis and what other linters, like maybe uh, something ba based on rules or based on the actual code structure. Uh, you, with those, you usually can uh, write some uh, rules and you can uh, find some problems, but you cannot find all the problems. So error analysis is similar to what you will have in IntelliJ IDEA for the data flow analysis where you can track certain variable types, a few of them, and then tell you when you have unreachable code and things like that. But error analysis, I think it takes a kind of like a more, uh, the approach it takes basically, it takes all that information, all that data flow and uses an SMT solver on, on behind to actually um, get back an answer as to which uh, constraints are violated in certain parts of your your program. So Can you just it, uh, explain what an SMT solver is for folks that aren't familiar? I'll defer that to Alejandro. <laughs> oh, yeah. So an, an SMT solver is a clever black box. So essentially, it's it's a small a small library or program. So so SMT actually means satisfiability model of theory. So that's that's coming from from the people doing logic, and the idea it's it's essentially something which you can say. You know, uh, I know that n is greater than zero, and I know that n is smaller than zero. And the SMT solver tells you no. I mean, this is this is false. Or you say, oh, n is greater than one, and n is greater than two. Oh, great! You can actually simplify it to n is greater than two. So it's like a small reasoning engine that we use. So so you can we are actually not doing any reasoning within our own analysis. We are just creating. Uh, the right questions for for this uh, thing, and and there, if you go to SMT server, they are incredibly powerful. They can do crazy reasoning. So we just go there, ask it, and if they, if if the SMT solver tell us this is all okay, we say yes, okay. Otherwise, and that's actually something we are we want to explore. It tells you, look, there is a case in which I couldn't prove it, and our goal at some point is to be able to reflect this back to the user and say. Look, actually, it turns out that if your function is, is taking a list of five elements which are all zero, this is breaking. So there you are. Please debug your code with this thing. So that, that's like, but it's a magical box. For me, it's like, it's the most magic piece of software I know. I don't know how it works and how it can do it. It's extremely efficient, uh, but it, that, that's what it is. It's, it's a reasoning engine. Sorry, if I can come back to your previous question, uh, Hadi. Uh, but I also think uh, it's very interesting about error analysis is that it takes into account uh, existing functions in the ecosystem for checking invariants, for example, required from the column standard libraries taking into account. So if your library or code is already using the require function from the column standard library, error analysis will actually also take that into account as a law, as a precondition. Uh, and we can do similar things for other, uh, you know, assertion libraries that people might be using in their code. And you can uh, register them to the Gradle config to say, hey, this assert function, this custom assert function that we're using, you also have to take into account an error analysis. And in that way, you can enhance error analysis with existing code that's already out there uh, for existing libraries that are already out there. That's actually quite curious. 
Uh, by the way, just real quick for you, Hadi. I know that you have uh, a history with .NET and you have a lot of love for it, but you actually don't even need to leave the JVM ecosystem to uh, see the kind of annotation work that that we've been doing at JetBrains. If you yeah. go, if you just have a, a standard Java project and you've ever seen where it says "at contract pure" um, for for methods that come from the from the Java standard library. Those are also annotations that IntelliJ actually adds. Um, that's not something that's that's in there. Yeah. Um, but okay, so we've you've briefly said that this this SNT solver is a magical black box, but that's also very efficient or very performant. And I think that's maybe one of the other big questions for people because it sounds really computationally heavy to check uh, a ton of conditions all over the place. Uh, so I'm just wondering, like, what's what will be the performance impact on on my project when I add error analysis? Is it suddenly gonna come to a stop, and you know, it's I'm gonna drink a coffee every time I I rebuild, or or what are we looking at? It's Android. <laughs> <laughs> then you have beer problems. I think it's it, what our test has been showing in our smaller projects is that normal compilation with error analysis. Uh, takes usually like three times more than a regular compilation. Uh, that is not too bad if you just think about it as an analysis tool, if it's not continuously uh, compiling uh, or compiling a huge code base with it, because you are basically in a smaller loop in analysis as you are typing, and that's what we're hoping for the front end IR, because at that po point, uh, it's not as low a, a, as much as, you know, it's uh, considering not the entire program all the time, but considering partial parts of the program that can inject into a context and they can retract facts and, and rules from that context. So it's uh, kind of like a communication engine type of style. So in that sense, it's not too slow, but it, I would say uh, this kind of analysis uh, really increases the compilation time because it has to do a lot more work to give you the errors that otherwise you're ignoring. That's that's interesting, but uh, does it also mean that the when does it mean that it integrates with? Uh, sorry, in I can't speak right now. Does that also mean <laughs> that it integrates with incremental compilation? Like, are are parts of your like of the invariants are these also then being cached, or is that like planned? No, that's because that's important. Like small loop. That's unfortunately something we haven't done. So right now it's a full, like like it's a, a like you compile your entire your entire project with it. So that's that's I mean the main the main problem that that now you need to do the whole thing. And there are so many things you can cache in between sessions. Like there is, for example, quite some startup time. So what I mentioned that the loss could come from a different library from the other thing. That means there has to be some search, which could potentially be cast uh, and so on. Uh, but if I if I remember correctly, the, <clears throat> the current compiler infrastructure didn't give us enough hooks to do it in, in a simple way, because it's, it's really, it seems that it's really geared for this kind of uh, compilation that would you compile your whole project. But it seems that the new API is really giving you hooks for the incremental thing. So, so uh, as 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 Raúl was saying, in theory, it's as easy as just saying, "Oh, these are the things I know from this function, but now they are wrong. Throw them away." 
get the new code and run it there. So it should be it's it it potentially it's it's simple given the right the right hooks to cache this information in between. Yeah, the the problem we have with the pre, with the old API in the compiler is that it has a single analysis hook endpoint. I mean service where you are called in before analysis and after analysis uh, is completed. And then if you want to do something with what you have analyzed, you have to rewind that phase and repeat the process. And that's kind of a limitation. But in the new uh, front-end IR APIs, there's like several different uh, phases, which we can hook the right uh, parts of the analysis to do the proper caching as it goes traversing the entire program. But so it'll check it. Go ahead. No, it's. A Sorry, finish your thought. <laughs> no, I was saying like so it will improve in the near future as soon as uh, front end IR becomes uh, stable and we're able to adapt. Okay, but do you envision error analysis as something that you run every time you uh, compile and test your program, or would you assume that it's something that stays more like an integration test, which you maybe run nightly or on CI uh, to not get that impact? You can choose either way, but I think uh, we envision it as when you are in your IDE and you're in your editor, in that tight loop of analysis as you type, then it, then, then it, it can work just fine because that's not you know slow, uh, too slow to, to actually perform that partial analysis. Then we also envision that people will just like use it in their regular build or CI uh, as part of a build step. Uh, so it can be used in any way. It's just a great old task. So. Oh, okay. Part of the build, so it hooks up as a compiler plugin, and you can choose to run it or enable or disable. And what's the state of all this? I mean, is it ready for production for people to use it? Yeah, I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you don't get results. So it's, I mean, it's, it's. Let's say when people ask me, it's like I don't know whether you could even. Act talk about production reading this kind of thing. So you can run it and it you have a great old task. Uh, we think that it never it doesn't crash for any programs, but sometimes it will just say, you know, I don't know. I don't know if your program is correct or not because I'm not understanding this. You're using mutability and we don't understand what's going on. Uh, something which I found that maybe we, we talk about some time earlier, but, but uh, for example, we don't have an annotated Java library so you go and use a, you know something from java collections then there is no annotation so it will just tell you ah, sorry i i don't know what to do but you can just use it right now and as i say it works uh and it doesn't crush your compilation so worst case scenario you are having no no further problems that you, you, we're not showing you more problems but it won't it will never crash your stuff right we don't go into the like code generation pipeline or whatever. We are not touching anything. We're just looking at it. I love it. I love. I love the 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 the, the, the standard of, of quality here. Well, we don't crash, so yeah. <laughs> you can use it. It's fine. We don't crash. Yeah. I mean, we can guarantee that we don't crash. No, I mean, we don't crash your program. We don't do anything. You know, we. Oh, but you we, can we crash. We just don't crash your program. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Oh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I am kidding. No, th this is this is very good, and and I have to ask you one question because I know that there's hundreds of thousands of listeners that are wondering the same thing. <laughs> good one, good one. Um, this segment on immutability has been brought to you by Rubik's Cube, which is not immutable. No, the question is like, 
what you folks have done uh, as as a team in regards to Arrow in general, not just Arrow analysis, but everything that you've done is really wonderful. And I think that many folks in the Kotlin community appreciate it. I'm not sure how many understand it, but many, many appreciate it. And and that's not, not I'm not, that's not, a, that's a compliment. Uh, and, you know, when we're talking now, you're like, yes, if we get this stuff included in the standard Kotlin library or the compiler, et cetera, it is awesome, right? But I have to ask, because this is obviously a problem. This is mostly open source. If not, it's all open source. Uh, how do you maintain this? How do you sustain this work? Well, in my particular case, uh, through 47 Degrees, which uh, helps Aero uh, with marketing and some other uh, organization, we have like the Aero meeting for maintainers uh, every week. And there's people from 47, like, you know, taking the notes, making sure that we are following up with the tickets that kind of like help. Uh, gives us back uh, some kind of like recognition from the community uh, and that, that I think that pays off and I think also uh, it kind of like portrays the, the values of the company being a company focused on correct software functional programming all these kinds of like uh, uh, things uh, being associated to Arrow is definitely uh, a good thing and then in the personal aspect I was one of the original Founders alongside a group of friends uh, in Spain. Uh, they're still my friends. Uh, I've made many friends. Like, for example, I met Simon before he even came to 47 as part of the Aero community. I knew Alejandro also before. Uh, so it's been working with friends that, that makes it uh, uh, fun. And sometimes when you can justify with work, when then it's uh, great. And when not, we still, I still put time in the evenings. Like right now, I'm working on. Aero inject, which is going to be a DI framework with the Kotlin compiler exclusively. So it doesn't use uh, source code generation. And I'm doing that with, uh, with Javier uh, Segovia, uh, which is a friend from the Aero community, also one of the maintainers. And that's like part of the fun of like, you know, doing open source, like working on the projects you like with the friends and people uh, you like, and sometimes it works for business and some other times it's just like personal. Okay, so, so, so I should probably get more into open source to, to get some friends. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, no, but I think that for the purpose of like your business model, which is selling consulting, um, I completely agree with you in that this works well because it very much contributes positively to your, to your branding, both personal and to the company branding. Yeah, sorry, Seb, I keep interrupting you, but no, it's, it's okay. It's, it's all good. I, just I know it is. Go ahead. <laughs> what a power. No, move. seriously, go ahead. Oh, yeah, thanks. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> you managed to derail even like the simplest thoughts that I have. It's uncanny. It's great. <laughs> I actually just wanted to say that, well, I wish that we could make these episodes like three hours long uh, because I feel like there's so much more uh, that we could talk about. I feel like we're actually just in the middle of everything, but we are unfortunately out of time for this episode. So I want to... First of all, thank you, of course, for coming on. And I want to ask one more question to kind of tie all of this together. You said in the beginning, or in the middle at some point, uh, that you're always glad when Arrow functionality enters the standard library. So the question is, of course, 
uh, after Keep 87, we got the context receivers when the spend functions kind of got uh, properly supported. You managed to uh, convert some of your code. What should go into the standard library next? Um, I'm just going to cut the silence. Don't worry. Let's do a quick <laughs> round. Five. Yeah, okay, just... Simon, okay. first, what do you want to go into the standard library? Or, or let's let's say in the in the Kotlin standard ecosystem, because I guess it could also be in the compiler mm. or the language. Yeah. Well, can I say two things? Sure. No, only one. I already <laughs> mentioned. I already <laughs> mentioned arrow optics. Uh, this is something that I would really love to see in the language, uh, because I think it's valuable for everyone uh, to you know be able to work with immutable data in a much simpler and conciser way. Uh, and another thing that I'm really uh, looking forward to or hoping to see at some point in the uh, standard libraries are structured tuples, or maybe I have to say it in the language. Uh, and because, yeah, currently we have tuple 4 to tuple 22 in addition to pair and triple. Uh, in arrow core is something that I really don't like, and I really like the structured uh, tuples that uh, were mentioned in the 10 years uh, Colin talk by Roman last year. All right. Raul. I must uh, in line with what Simon said and related to the tuple support. And I think this is kind of an advanced feature, but it's something that we need to solve the problem of the 22 arguments, not just in classes, but also the problem of RET in functions. So I would like to have proper tuple support in the compiler with some kind of a way to express uh, that a function has arbitrary number of arguments and there are all of them typed. It doesn't have to be an H list. It doesn't have to do what other languages are doing or they follow to solve this problem, but a way to express a function that has uh, an arbitrary number of types and then that can later be uh, extracted in the result type. Uh, that would be great. So better type level features for tuple and in general products supporting the compiler. Alejandro, and you're not allowed to say the same. No. <laughs> That's always the worst when you're the last person in the list. No worries. I would, I would, uh, what I would really love is to see some of the features of arrow analysis coming into the compiler. And I think like, for example, Calvin has made a great job in like the nullability front, right? That's that's a bit like an analysis, right? You suddenly have types in which you say whether it's nullable or not, and it can track some of those things. So I think given that many of the of the, you know, once you don't have no reference exceptions, many things come from like uh number bounds, like you are overflowing or not, or whether lists are empty or not. These are also small bits of information that I would love the compiler to track for me and arrow analysis like you can track whatever you want but maybe there is a way to track the most interesting things the things which people stumble upon the most and make it fast so we don't lose the the fast aspect of the language so i would really hope that some of those things creep into the into the analysis that either the compiler or intellij is doing uh, so that that's what that's what i would really love to to happen in the future yeah. and the top of thing that's <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really very happy with the context receiver thing. So, I mean, yeah, me uh, Simon yeah. and I uh, yes. uh, spent some time trying to figure out how to do these multiple things using all kinds of combinations of, of 
weird objects and compiler plugins, and now you know we don't have to do it anymore because it's there. So, so that's that's. Yeah, but you've gone again, like you mentioned that some of the stuff that you've done has uh, impacted performance. But I just realized that when we first launched Kotlin, one of the promises was that uh, we're going to be at least as fast as Java. Um, and I keep saying, we're not there yet. We're quite close, but we're not there yet. <laughs> but maybe we could just make it easier and say, we are faster than Android. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the new tagline. Cool. <laughs> Than Android. <laughs> what a way to sign us off. Yeah. Uh, if you want to learn more about Arrow, you can go to arrow-kt.io. I'm not sure. Are there other social medias that you would like to shout out? There's a Twitter account and there Slack. is like a Slack channel. Wonderful. Yeah. Then we'll also have links for those in the show notes below. And definitely check out 47 Degrees. Awesome company. Providing awesome consulting, awesome Are you people. hiring? We are hiring, hiring, yes. Oh, there you're hiring, yes. <laughs> wonderful. There you go. They're hiring. So if you want to do awesome stuff... Uh, Did you say maybe, wonderful maybe with a, a V? Wonderful, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I sometimes just say wunderbar and people don't even catch on to it. Um, anyway. <laughs> Until next time. Yeah, see you in the next one. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, I'm, and I'm not sure if we're still doing these things, but also click the like button and the bell and uh, make sure you subscribe. Um, if you were wondering what this whole context receiver thing is about that the Arrow folks are really excited about, there's a video that we've linked right here. Um, and I'm not sure if YouTube can make it possible, but the Kotlin 10 Gears video that was uh, mentioned beforehand uh, with the structure tuples Maybe it's going to appear also... right up here in the corner. Is maybe it? I don't it'll know. Maybe it will be on screen. I don't know how this works. Well, that's going to be great. All right. <laughs>